and seeking the ideal Christmas gift for someone you don't know all that well, you want to know what they like and what they don't like. Don't get him cologne. Don't do, he hates cologne. It wouldn't hurt him to use it once in a while, but he hates this stuff. Don't buy that for him. Or do not buy her chocolate-covered cherries. She despises them. Well, that's helpful information, isn't it? You don't want to buy someone a gift and give them something that they don't like, something they hate. And of course, with people we know very well, we don't need the information. We know them, and in fact, part of how we know them is that we understand what they love and what they hate. It's part of our relationship with them. Now, there are significant things, such as candy and cologne and other types of minor preferences and dislikes, but there are also an array of very serious matters, loves and hates that define a person, sometimes in distinction from others, sometimes in collaboration and partnership with others, but very significant hatreds and loves that define us. You really do not know a person well until you understand what that person loves. And you really don't understand a person well until you understand what that person hates. When I meet new people, I wish I could say, I'm probably not the greatest at small talk, and I wish I could just say to them, Hi, I'm Dan Miller. What do you love and what do you hate? It, it probably wouldn't go over very well. Oh, they, they'd say, You're weird. I, I hate this conversation, and I'd really love to get out of it. That would how it goes. But we, we, we talk around things and we never really get to the heart of it. And this is at the heart of much of what we are. What we love and what we hate. We don't find such reticence in God to share what He loves and what He hates. In fact, He willingly reveals to us these things that we might know Him better. And today I'd like us to consider that we do not know God as we should until we have a clear and accurate understanding of what God hates. Do you know God well enough to know what He hates? Do you love God well enough that your knowledge of what God hates influences the way that you live your life? It's a perception that you have, an understanding that you have, and you live in response to God's hatred. In our investigation of the first 19 verses of Proverbs chapter 6 last week, we touched briefly on verses 16 through 19. We link them together because they link with the pre- preceding verses here in Proverbs 6 as we continue to make our way through uh, this book, the first nine chapters of this book. But since this truth is so vital to an accurate knowledge of who God is, And since it is a matter that is so seldom considered, I think it might be profitable for us to consider this aspect of God's nature at greater length and to come back to this theme of what God hates. Distorted perceptions about God plague us. We need to realize that. They plague you. They plague me. They compromise our ability to rightly relate to God. 
to see Him for who He actually is. And the concept of God's hatred is a vital corrective to many of these distorted images of who God is. What does God hate? We look at verse 16 of Proverbs chapter 19 and revisit it. These six, there are six things, the text says, that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to Him. This is one of the beauties of preaching verse by verse through a book of Scripture. You talk about things you might not have thought about. And I don't know that talking about the hatred of God is something that would have come immediately to mind. But here we encounter it in the text of Scripture. God revealing to us, this is what I hate. And it's vital to our understanding of who He is. These six things, these seven things, how do you take that? The author's not saying, I have a list here of six things. Wait a minute, I just thought of a seventh. I want to add this seventh thing in here. That's, that's not the idea. And I think maybe there's some value as we come to understand the Old Testament text and the book of Proverbs to consider this just a bit further. Go to chapter 30 of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 30, in the writings of Agor. In the words of Agar, we find verse 15. Notice verse 15. The leech has two daughters. Give, give. Three things are never satisfied. Four never say enough. There's three things. There's four things. And then in verse 16, the list of the four things is given. Notice verse 18. Three things are too wonderful for me. Four I do not understand. And then verse 19, a list of the four things. Verse 21, three things and four things. We find it again with the list being given there in verses 22 and 23. Then you come to verse 24, four things on earth are small, but they're exceedingly wise. Here it doesn't have the three things, four things. It just references the four things because that's the point. And then verse 29, once again, three things are stately in their tread, four are stately in their stride, and Uh, Verses 30 and 31 list those four things. I show this to you because clearly, if at this point you say, well, Agar really can't count. He keeps remembering things. I mean, clearly that's not what's going on. He didn't get four out of five wrong in the list and said "There's, there's three things. Wait a minute, there's four. No, it's clearly just a poetic way of, of saying this is a representative list. It could be two things, three things. It could be seven things, eight things, or as we have here, back to Proverbs chapter 6, six things, seven things. It's a poetic way of saying it is a representative list. A representative list here of what God hates. Now, I don't think we should take it then that this is all that God hates. If I told you I hate green olives and pickled pig's feet, I would be telling you the truth. I think God made olives to be picked when they were ripe, not green, and stuffing a pimento in it doesn't help anything, in my opinion. It just doesn't work for me. I'm sorry. And pickled pig's feet, I don't even want to go there, uh, if you know anything about that. But I had a grandfather who did press them on me, and to this day I shudder. But if I said that to you, there's two foods I don't like, you wouldn't conclude that's all he doesn't like. Uh, there's not a lot I don't like, but it's more than two, I can tell you that, right? We, we say in, in speech, we use this approach all the time, and so it is here, so to understand it, six things, seven, representative list of the kinds of things that God hates, but very significant revelation to us. 
Before we consider this list more carefully, though, and this is where I really wanted to park today that we didn't have opportunity to do so last week, but I think that we need to stop here and face what is really obvious to us. A God who hates? Really? I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that idea. Maybe that's not what you like to think about when you think about God. Honestly, you may have no category for the hatred of God. And if that's the case, I'm glad you're here to consider this because God says there's things I hate and I want you to know about it. Now we need to work through it and understand it, but we do have a God who hates. To many, such a representation of God is repugnant. They cannot imagine a God who hates anything and certainly not a God who hates people. Perish the thought. But the God of the Bible is not timid about revealing what He hates. But we need to understand, first of all, that God's hatred is perfectly pure. And here's where we run into trouble. The problem with our definition of hatred, and when we hear God has hatred, we don't like the idea because our understanding of hatred is influenced by our experience. And our experience of hatred is overwhelmingly sinful. Our hatred is mostly disdain that desires harm to come upon another person. Our hatred fantasizes about bad things happening to that hated person. Our hatred is selfish. It is small. It is usually very petty. It is often vengeful. But we need to understand this about God. God's perfections are untainted by even a hint of sin. And God abhors everything that does not conform to His sinless nature. So His wrath and His hatred flow from His moral perfections and are thus absolutely pure, absolutely good. Now it's difficult for us to conceive of that, but we need to do so. God is a God of hatred, but it's a hatred that is absolutely pure. Secondly, God's hatred is broadly defined and it speaks particularly of His opposition to sinners. According to theologian John Frame, in some biblical context, hate means simply to oppose the goals and the purposes of another. He seems to argue that that is in fact probably the primary idea of the hatred of God. His opposition to sinners. Such hatred may include deep aversion to someone, but it is not the kind of hate that wants the worst for that person, that just wants to harm them. It's opposition to all that is evil. In fact, this word hatred is used of Jacob and his relationship with Leah. It says that Jacob hated Leah. Now in the context, as you read that text in Genesis, it's clear Jacob doesn't want to hurt her. He doesn't have disdain for her as such. In the context, the idea is that he's not romantically attracted to this wife. Horrible situation with two wives. One he's attracted to, one he's not. But that's the point. He hates her. Not in the sense that we usually give to that word. So my point simply is that in the text of Scripture, the word hatred is more broadly defined than we sometimes take it. Think of Jesus saying in Luke 14, 26, you must hate your parents in order to follow me. 
Jesus is not telling us to have emotional disdain for our parents there. In context, the hate speaks of subordinating that relationship to the greater relationship of our relationship with Christ as Lord. So understand this secondly then. Hate needs to be taken broadly, meaning more than just disdain for someone, wanting to hurt them, wanting them out of the way, despising them. It has more of an idea of opposition. So it's absolutely pure in God, and it is opposition to sin. Now, thirdly, God's hatred as opposition to sinners is occasioned by His interaction with them. Now here we get into the being of God. And uh, work with me just briefly through this. But I think it's important as we understand God and come to understand what leads to His hatred that we know how this has developed historically, in time, in his relationship as creator to his creation. When we think of God as a God who has hatred, do we conceive in eternity past the triune God, the members of the triune being hating one another? Well, no, of course not. There's perfect unity and perfect love in that relationship. There's not hatred there. So God's eternity in hate in, in eternity God's hatred in eternity past was limited to his decree to permit sin to be knowing then that he would hate and resist it. He determined in eternity past before time began that sin would be and knew then in that time, if we can't really use the word time, but he knew there there would be resistance to sin, opposition to sinners. He wouldn't embrace it, he wouldn't welcome it, he would oppose it. So as Frame writes, from eternity past, God has had an implacable hatred of evil. That hatred is not separable from His perfect nature. It is a necessary and defining attribute, not a merely accidental or relational one. God is the supreme hater of wickedness. And so in a sense, according to His decrees, God hated sin before it ever was. And has oriented Himself toward a hatred of evil. Wisdom, then, as we seek it out in the book of Proverbs, is learning to align our lives with God's fundamental, innate, eternal opposition to evil. To hate sin is to oppose it. To hate sinners is not to harbor emotional disdain for them as much as it is to oppose their sin and call them to repentance. And in His very nature then, God is a God who hates that which is evil. So returning to the text, we ask then, what is it that God hates? What does God oppose? In all of His purity, in His very being, what is it that God despises? It's very important that we discern this. We ask this question with a keen interest to align our lives with God's wise counsel and His moral design for the universe. So let's soak in this again for a bit longer today. It's so vital to our knowledge of Him. He hates, verse 17, haughty eyes. This is a reference to eyes lifted up in arrogant pride. It's the opposite of looking downward in humility. Now the point is not that you always have to have your eyes on the ground and you're not 
allowed to ever look someone in the eye, obviously. The point is a proud look reflects a proud heart. There is pride that we keep buried in the deep recesses of our heart and we confess that pride to God as sin. But here, the pride so beclouds the soul that it begins to show through the eyes. And we've, we've seen this, all of us. In fact, we probably reflected this very look. And we know how to read eyes on some level. We're always doing that, maybe subconsciously, but we know how to read fear in someone's eyes. We can read sorrow, frustration, bewilderment. We're not always sure we're absolutely right, but you you get a sense of this as you look into the eyes of people. Well, here are haughty eyes. These are eyes that send the message, I'm better than you. You should honor me. I'm really important and you need to know it. They're eyes that look down upon others from an exalted position. Humility does not shine from the eyes of someone who thinks like this. I'm better than you. And God hates that. He's opposed to it. We need to take this to heart. God is fundamentally opposed to proud, self-serving, arrogant people. We could give many reasons why, but I think two could be, at least be helpful to us here. First of all, their life orientation is not one of love for others, and this is wholly out of sync with who God is. A proud person is not a loving person. And God hates that. That's not how He wants us to relate to others. Secondly, such people display an immoral ignorance of the power and the grace of God. When you see God in all of His power, in all of His glory, the last thing you're thinking is how great you are. Seeing the glory of God humbles us. And seeing the grace of God humbles us as well. We see a God of goodness and kindness and grace and forgiveness and we're humbled by that because we know we don't deserve it. So God hates haughty eyes. God is opposed to people of pride because they live in an unloving way and they don't see His glory and His grace. The second thing that God hates is a lying tongue. Why does God hate lying? Why is it evil to lie in the first place? The answer is not because you might get caught. You might be exposed and then you may be embarrassed. It's not because the percentages of actually getting away with a lie are so very low and it's just not very wise to try to do so. That's not the reason. We need to understand, first of all, and really conceive this in our relationship with God, That truth is anything that corresponds to reality, and the ultimate reality is God. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. God is truth. In Him there is no falsehood. So when we lie, we are out of sync with the nature of God and the moral design of creation. This may be what we call a bold-faced lie, It may be simply a way of cheating and getting around the truth. But whatever it is, whether grand or small, lying is walking out of sync with who God is in His reality. Secondly, we must also understand that God sovereignly ordains all that comes to pass. I mean that. 
what the Scripture says. He does not enjoy, he does not initiate sin, but he does ordain and permit all that comes to pass for his own sovereign purposes and the glory of his name. So think of this when we lie. Any purposeful misrepresentation of the reality that God has ordained is an act of opposition to his dominion and to his rule. So a teacher asks if we've read a certain assignment and is just going to take our word for it. And we know we really tried to get that assignment done, but we just didn't have the time. There were circumstances outside of our control. And we know if there's nothing here, I can just say yes. And so I do. Yes, I read the assignment. Mark me down as one who's done the work. It seems so small. It seems so little. But what's really taking place here is God God has ordained a different set of circumstances. You did not get your homework done. And by saying that you did, you are really raging against the sovereign purposes of God. The liar takes reality and twists it so as to harm others or to help himself or a combination of the two. In reality, then, liars attempt to dethrone God by creating with their words an alternative reality to that which God has decreed. This is what happened, but I'm going to say it was this. I'm going to try to run the universe at least at this little spot and change reality. That never ends well and god hates it in fact in revelation 20 and verse 8 it says that all liars will be cast into the lake that burns with fire and sulfur which is the second death a lifestyle of lying is a lifestyle lived in opposition to the sovereignty of god who is ultimate reality and it is a way of destruction So God hates it because He loves people. To tell the truth, of course, does not mean that you must always reveal everything that you know. Wisdom teaches us the skill of keeping quiet about some things. But having said that, we should unite together to create a church culture in which truth-telling thrives. A church should not be a place in which we are constantly hedging around reality. An environment of loving grace is necessary then if truth is going to thrive versus one of critical, judgmental, unbending scrutiny of others. It almost pre-programs people to lie because they don't want to face the scrutiny, the judgment, the criticism. We need to have a place of grace and love in which we welcome the truth. It's an environment in which we devalue and refuse to reward hypocrisy. Those who hide behind a mask, who are living a lie. Rather, on the other hand, we want to prize honesty. Now there's no question, and perhaps right now in our culture, unlike any other time, when some people can be, say, too much and be too honest. With that understood, a church should be a place where we can be honest. 
where we tell the truth, in the way that we live, in the confessions of our sins to one another, in our faithfulness to represent what really is. We may fool one another, but we're not going to fool God with falsehood, and there's no reason to walk in relationship with one another in any other way than the truth. And in response to God's hatred, our family should become realms of truth-telling as well. Parents, there's a lot of things you should not reveal to your children. But don't lie to them. Don't try to protect them with lies. When you're protecting your children with lies... You're walking outside of reality and you're trying to run the universe as your own sovereign God. I know you didn't sit down one morning and think about that. But don't use lies to protect your kids. And children, determine always to tell the truth to your parents, even if it costs you. If you've done something wrong, if you want to sidestep their counsel, if you don't want them to say no, lying is never the way forward. Lying puts you at odds with God. It puts you out of sync with reality. And that may fool your parents, but it never fools God, and it never ends well. No good is accomplished from it. God hates lying. He loves individuals whose lives are marked by the truth. Thirdly, God hates hands that shed innocent blood. God is the giver of life. Life is a sacred trust from Him. It belongs to Him. And God gives to no one the freedom to arbitrarily take life. As the giver of life, as the protector of life, murder is particularly hateful to God. Honestly, we must again come to terms with it. I did mention it last week, but we live in a nation with bloody hands. We do. It's a culture in which we live. Across this land, doctors are legally free to take the life of unborn children, and they do. Even when those old enough to live outside the womb are the target of this misery. They are free to end the life of a child who, if killed against the mother's will, it would be considered homicide. But on the razor-thin edge of a mother's will, doctors can and routinely do pierce a child's skull, vacuum out their brain, discard their dead bodies, and move on with life every single day. People can package the defense of such actions any way that they choose. But the truth is, it's murder. And God hates hands that shed innocent blood. It's the reality of this crime. It's such an evidence of sin in our world that it's so condoned and accepted. And this last week, this what a sad week. Yet another school massacre More children, more adults dying in such a horrific way. I think it's important as we think through this, we are not going to read in the media that this is the result of sin. You won't see that. And there will be this this inquest to figure out why 
this happened. We talk to God, we don't really need to ask that question. We know why it happened. It's sin. There's a fundamental relationship toward God that is skewed and twisted and distorted, and it shows itself in ways like this. I think as Christians, we certainly need to be cautious about giving reasons why this has happened, but let's give the reason that God gives. It's sin. While we won't hear that, we know this is what God thinks. And I think that it is important as we look at God and understand His relationship to such horror, God's tender compassion is there in that place. He is grieving with those who weep. Such senseless loss. Taking of innocent life. We have these children sing here this morning and to think of someone harming them. It's a horror. And God's compassion and grace is there as people mourn. But that grace and that compassion is not from a God who stands idly by, incapable of doing anything. That's our kind of grief. There's nothing we could do to stop it. God does not simply respond to this with that kind of compassion, but His compassion is matched also by an anger against sin, an opposition to sinners. God's tender compassion for the grieving is the kind of compassion that's matched by His holy anger against anyone who would so bloody their hands. Innocent blood. But as we mourn the murderous ways prevalent in our nation, we need to also remember, not forget the word of the Lord in 1 John 3.15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Now that's the kind of hatred that we know all about. It's the kind of hatred that means to harm And we are reminded here that in God's mind, the guilt of murder applies to the attitude of the heart, not only to the physical act. We look at horrific examples of murder and bloodied hands in our nation this past week, but we must also look in our own heart and know that where we hate, there is blood guilt in our own hearts. The fourth thing that God hates, verse 18, is a heart that devises wicked plans. God cares about the thoughts that we permit to fill our minds. We're led to understand here that God is opposed to those who think up godless plans and meditate on godless deeds. He hates it. Proverbs 4.23, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. The spring, the well of our souls is to be kept clean of evil thoughts, knowing that a heart that devises wicked plans is an abomination to God. And the horrifying deeds that people commit, we live in a nation that will not permit us to talk about this. Where it starts is not by picking up a gun and walking into a school. Where it starts is with a heart that is devising wicked plans and doesn't stop. That continues to feed off of these evil ideas and doesn't say enough is enough. Does not come to God in repentance, but continues forward. So we ask ourselves as we think of what God hates, what do you think about when you daydream? 
What do you think about when you're falling asleep at night? What do you think about when you wake up in the morning, when you're shaving, showering, getting ready for the day? What are the thoughts that are going through your mind? Remember, God hates a heart that concentrates on evil. If the thoughts that are characteristic of what we're thinking about are are driven by greed or lust or revenge or pride, we need to learn by the grace of God to control our thoughts because He despises a heart that devises wicked plans. Number five, feet that make haste to run to evil. Here the action now follows the planning. And God hates the heart that thinks up evil schemes, so He hates the actions that follow wicked plans. God hates a lifestyle oriented to evil. He's opposed to those who use their lives to pursue sin. And we need to be careful then not to glamorize what God despises. The Hollywood stars, the professional athletes, many of them, the models, entertainers, not blaming all of them, but the stars of our culture are too often people whose lives are characterized by exactly this, running after evil. That's how they live. They're pursuing it hotly all the time. And we need to be careful that we don't glamorize that. We need to recognize that God is opposed to such people. He hates how they live. We shouldn't worship them. We should not emulate them. We need to do what is right and do what God loves and realize His opposition to those who run after evil. Number six, a false witness who breathes out lies. This seems to be a return to the reference to lying in number two. But here the lying is calibrated to destroy the reputation of another person. In this way it is particularly sinister. This is mean-spirited, unloving speech that twists the truth in order to destroy another person. It is often vengeful, often sly, always empty of loving regard for others, and God hates it. And when you speak about others, it's not always wrong to render proper judgment, but we need to remember when we speak about others that God hears every word. He knows the truth about what we say, or the falsehood about what we say. We need to be careful. We need to be aware that God hates it when we speak falsely about others and wrongly judge motives, accusing them of something they've not done, assigning blame to them that they don't deserve. God hates that. Let us learn to guard our tongues against falsehood when speaking of or in testimony about others. Now you notice that as we work our way through these verses, that there's a lot of body parts here, isn't there? We have eyes and hands and heart and feet and even here breathing, in a sense. In this way, the text subtly points to the horrific corruption of God's image in sinful people. It's a way of indicating the thorough corruption of man oriented against God's will. But as we come to the seventh, which is seen in a sense then as a crowning hatred, in this seventh one, we see that the list moves away from the body parts and actually just goes right at the person. And God hates one who sows discord among brothers. To this point, God's hatred is seen as oriented against eyes and hands and heart and feet and breath, but now it's oriented straight up against a person 
This is assumed in the text above, but here the bald truth is declared. God hates those who sow discord among brothers. Again, remember, the brothers is not here uh, biological brothers, but any who are in close connection with one another. Another truth about these enumerated uh, poetic statements is that the last vice or virtue is generally the one of emphasis. And that is the case, I think, here both contextually and as we understand just this section of Scripture. The seventh vice is the chief focus of God's hatred. In view is a person who purposely divides close friends, people who are meant to be related together and beneficial to one another. God hates it when a person bent is bent on disrupting dis, uh, the unity between people, dividing them one from another. This usually is accomplished how? Through gossip, through lying. Poisoning the mind of others. It's often driven by revenge and jealousy or pride. But it's using words, it's using means to separate people in their unity with one another. God hates those who break apart the respect, the trust, and the mutual partnership that friends enjoy with one another. God is a reconciler. He loves to bring people together. He loves it when His people love one another. And so He stands in angry opposition to those who try to disrupt the unity of God's people. And I think there is here a serious warning to church members. There are things that do indeed disrupt and disunite that are right and proper, such as standing for truth such as exercising corrective discipline in a body when that is necessary. God reveals these things. He talks to us about this. He encourages us this way. But beyond such occasions, God hates it when people are pulled apart and divided. He's a reconciler. He's one who loves and rejoices in His people coming together. And He despises it. He hates it. He is opposed to those who separate people. It's interesting that one of the three major categories of church discipline found in the New Testament pertains to those who stir up disunity. We look at our world right now and Right relationships, peaceful relationships, mutually edifying relationships are rare. God labors against the bent of our world toward war and fighting. He desires to reconcile and unite people, so we need to get it. God hates those who disrupt the unity He's always laboring to protect and promote through forgiveness, reconciliation, through faithful partnerships in the truth. This is how God is operating, where He is leading. He wants people to be reconciled to Him ultimately, and thus to one another. You get in the middle of that? You pull people apart that God's seeking to bring together? He's opposed to you. He wants nothing to do with that. And we come then again as we consider this list and the hatred of God, realizing it's just representative, but we come back to this place again and have to say that we stand guilty before God. 
I don't know, unless you're entirely asleep here this time of year, that's real possible. <laughs> but if, if you're, unless you're asleep, you've got to read this list and say, man, I've, I've got issues here. I've really got issues here. I deal with pride. I deal with a lying tongue. There's hatred in my heart for people. I think up plans that are wicked. If people saw what was going on in my brain sometimes, it'd be horrific. If they knew what I really thought. I find it easy to run to evil in certain areas of my life and really hard to do what's right. And I even divide people sometimes rather than bring them together. When we think on these things, we, ha- we cannot stand here and say, I'm good. I don't do anything wrong. God's not opposed to me. We look at these ideas and we realize that there's weakness in us, there's sin in us, there's failure in us. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, the text of Scripture there says that we are by nature objects of God's wrath. Because of our innate orientation towards sin, God is fundamentally opposed to us. That wasn't my idea. Not good for self-esteem seminar, but you read Ephesians 2 and that's exactly what it says. We are by nature objects of God's wrath. It's because we don't understand His holiness and it's because we don't perceive the depths of our own sin. Comparing ourselves among ourselves, we factor out fairly well, we think. But when we factor ourselves against the purity of God in all of His moral perfections, we fall short. And we are the objects of His judgment because of our sin. But it's here then that we come to really understand the grace of God. God's wrath is poured out on His Son. So we can say this and say so with truthfulness and say so with thanksgiving. God both hates us and loves us. Can you say that? Does that bring joy to your soul to know God hates me and loves me? I mean that we have to understand it properly, but He hates us in the sense that by nature we are bent against Him and we fulfill our sinful desires in opposition to His glory, to His sovereignty. In that sense, He's opposed to us. But this One who was so opposed to us also has come into this world to love us. And we find then that His opposition is indeed an aspect of His love. He hated us in that he, he opposed our sin and natural bent against Him and would become rightfully our judge. But He loved us by pouring out His judgment on Jesus Christ who stood in our place to pay the penalty of our sin, who bore the wrath of His Father that we may receive the righteous standing of Christ and be forgiven of our sins. In hating sinners, in opposing their sin, God provided their rescue. His hatred was not the kind of hatred that sought merely to destroy. God's hatred, His opposition against sinners, is the natural demonstration of His holiness. He's repulsed by our sin. He's repulsed by your sin and mine. He can be nothing other But it was that hatred towards sinners 
with that judgmental wrath that God so loved the world that He gave His Son to die, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. It is only as we come to terms with the just hatred of God against sinners that we are prepared to fully comprehend the wonders of His grace. Distorted conceptions of God that dismiss His hatred and His wrath against sinners undermine the wonder of grace and they keep us from knowing God for who He truly is and they keep us from enjoying the salvation that He's provided in Christ. I don't remember who it was, but here just recently someone asked, can you be saved without knowing you're a sinner? Can God truly save you as you come to know of Christ crucified and risen, but you don't really know you're a sinner? You don't know that God is angry against your sin? I, I, I think it's impossible. We come to hear what Christ has done, but we don't realize that He's delivered us from our sin and satisfied His anger and His wrath against our wickedness that we really don't know why He died. We really have not come to understand the gospel. And when people do not perceive themselves as under the judgment of God and then come to pray a prayer and ask Jesus to save them, I think generally what is happening is they're taking a God and putting that God on their shelf along with all the other gods. Jesus is going to help me. That's a good thing, right? Well, Jesus wants me to say this or embrace this truth or pray this prayer. I'll pray that prayer. But it's not until we come to see that we have violated His law and we have stood in His face and said no, I'll do it my way. It's not until we see our sin that we can really understand His grace. God is opposed to every one of us. In our sin, He hates that sin. But by His grace, He provides His love that we can have a standing as His sons and daughters, fully accepted, fully forgiven. And here's the good news. You don't have to buy it. In fact, you can't buy it. You don't have to work for it. In fact, you could never earn it. The good news is, it's His gift. Free and full. A forgiveness of our sins. A.W. Tozer said, the heaviest obligation lying upon the Christian church today is to purify and elevate her concept of God until it is once more worthy of Him and worthy of her. In all her prayers and labors, this should have first place. We do the greatest service to the next generation of Christians by passing on to them undimmed and undiminished the noble concept of God which we receive from our Hebrew and Christian fathers of generations past. This will prove of greater value to them than anything that art or science can devise. And so, we've labored to know today a God who hates, such that we might truly conceive a God who loves. 
and that we might be rightly called to love him with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. He must do a work in you to bring that about. But as he does, we walk with a God who loves us infinitely and then learn to walk in the wisdom of the ways that he purchased for us through the work of Jesus Christ. Let's bow for prayer together as we close. And Lord, we give you thanks again. I pray there is so much that is here for us. And the application to each individual is beyond our capacity to fully work out here. But I pray that by your Spirit, the application of your Word would be real, that there would be a turning from sin for anyone who knows not Christ the Savior, that they would come and say, I am a sinner. God is right to judge me. But I, by His grace, will receive His gift of Christ crucified in my place and giving me His righteous standing, and I will receive freely and fully the forgiveness of sin. Work in that heart today. Show that soul there's nothing to lose but our sin and judgment and everything to gain. For those of us who know you as Savior, I pray that as the conviction of the Spirit continues to work in and through us, that we will bring our lives into line with the God that we know in Scripture and that you will teach us to walk in humility in faithfulness, in purity, and righteousness, not because of how good we are, but because of the righteousness that you have birthed in us through our faith in Christ. Help us to this end, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.